Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today will be an unusual program, I think. My guest is Dr. Bruce Damer, who is a polymath, to put it mildly. He has a company that has contracted with NASA for many years to develop virtual reality simulations of space flights. In fact, he has designed some rockets for actually uh, creating sustainable communities in outer space. He is also the archivist for counterculture figures such as Timothy Leary and Terence McKenna. He maintains a museum in his barn in Boulder Creek, California, of the history of computing, including a Cray supercomputer there in the barn. He is also co-author with Dr. David Deemer, my old friend, of A Theory on the Origins of Life that was featured on the cover of Scientific American magazine. So he's a man of many accomplishments. Now, last time, for those of you who are regular viewers, you'll know that this will be our fourth interview. Uh, The third one that uh, we had, I had planned to talk to him about our destiny of humanity in outer space, space migration, and his work in that area. But he was very moved to talk about some of his personal experiences and even to respond to comments that have been posted on YouTube in the comments section to his previous interviews. So I think tonight will be a an opportunity for us to uh, cover many topics, including his own personal journey and his interest in the uh, destiny of humankind in outer space. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. I thought maybe a good place to start would be with your work with NASA doing uh, simulations of uh, space flights. I, like you, probably, where were you in July 20th, 1969, Jeffrey? July 20th. (laughs) I'm not, I don't know. It's not a date that sticks in my mind. Neil Armstrong stepped out on the moon. See, in my mind, I I am so uh, careless. I thought it was 1968. Yeah, I I was with the family at our lake cottage, uh, and we had a little black and white TV. We didn't have TV at home. I think they borrowed a black and white TV, and there was a huge summer thunderstorm going on. This was in the Shuswap Lakes in, in British Columbia, and the the lightning would hit the lake. It didn't hit the cabin, so the TV kept broadcasting. And I just remember, I I was so obsessed with this. You know, months before I'd studied the launch of Apollo 9 with Rusty Schweikart aboard, who I later worked with. I think I mentioned that in the first in our first interview. But here I was, finally, you know, I'd, I'd taken the garbage cans out the previous week, and that's when Michael Collins and the crew were orbiting the moon and I tried to see it and then actually after the landing after seeing that fuzzy picture of Neil coming down and the ladder and stuff actually 
I was studying the moon uh, from our house in Kamloops, British Columbia, seeing if I could see a little dot there. And later I read that Michael Collins, who was the, the, the command module commander, had a high-powered like t- scope trying to see if he could find them. And I think it was difficult for him to find them just through this naked eye kind of thing. Even from yeah, the command uh, module. Recently, you know, we've seen wonderful pictures of Apollo 11's landing site uh, with Neil's steps. As Neil took a break. Uh, I don't know how they had a break. I think they only had 14 hours on the surface. And he walked over to West Crater, which is the basically the hazard that they'd avoided coming coming on the final descent and landing. And he just wanted to see it. You know, he wanted to see the thing that they almost could have tipped into and met their end. So he walked to the crater and he walked back just to look over. You know, and those those personal moments are, are so important. So his his contact with being there, you know. So that's that's where I, I caught the space bug. But then around nineteen seventy two or seventy three, you know, it, our town was, was kind of behind the time, so we got movies a little later than the rest of the world, but, and, and the hippies arrived in our town, like in the early to mid seventies, when they were all cleared out, they were cleared out of the Haight-Ashbury by then, but they came to Canada. But I remember seeing, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, you know, he wrote 2001, a space odyssey. And it was of course, uh, produced by Stanley Kubrick. And in the, after the apes get throw through throwing their bones at the air and things, there's this wonderful scene of the Pan Am shuttle, you know, now extinct airline called Pan Am, coming up to the rotating station. This beautiful station that's supposed to be in 2001, and it's partially under construction. You can see trusses and beams and things, and then there's a central core, and it, the shuttle rotates, and it goes into the station and couples, and there's like hundreds of people there, and there's a Hilton Hotel in part of it. And, and, and the Blue Danube yes, Waltz is yes. playing. Now, my little sciencey, spacey, geeky brain is not uh, waltzing to the Blue Danube. My brain is doing computations on the shuttle size. And that, that I saw there was probably a payload, a, a cargo version of that shuttle. How do they get those parts up there to build that thing? But the cargo version of the shuttle would not be long enough for the trusses that I was computing that there were 980 trusses in the thing. And then there was these base block sections that had to be in the circular central part. And I thought, okay, the only way this station is built is by heavy booster lift, uh, lifting like the Saturn V, but with a big fairing. You know, this is a total space geek kid. And I said, there's almost a thousand launches to lift these parts. No one would pay for that. And it would have an impact on the atmosphere. And i that's when I started to sort of think, what? You know, come on, you can give us these great visions. You know, Chesley Bonestell and Werner von Braun gave us the vision in Collier's magazine of the donut space station. You can, you can come up with these visions, but they're not practical. We can't lift that stuff. And so around 1974, I started thinking about it seriously. And by 1977, 78, I was doing hundreds of drawings i found these recently actually in the last few years of asteroid mining uh asteroid redirect uh using shot pellet kinds of things uh 
And I wrote letters to NASA with my designs, and I wrote letters to Gerard O'Neill at Princeton, who had created, he was the father, and you might have even interviewed him. I haven't, but I know uh, about his work and the idea of, I think he called it the L5 point, where we yeah. could establish a uh, so Gerard space station. Was extraordinary. He was a, a physicist sort of in the ilk, in the mold of Carl Sagan. Uh, but from Princeton, and he he somehow got the bug too, and he established, uh, participated or led a summer school at NASA Ames Research Center in 1975. And then this, if you can see, I don't know if you can see the see the Latin. I can logo. see it. Am I seeing it? So that's a that's Ames Research Center, my my main NASA center that I've done so much work with. So in the summer of '75. There was this wonderful program called the Summer Study Program on, I think, space habitats, and it resulted in the High Frontiers book, and and another set of paintings, not by Chesley Bonestell, but another artist showing Bernal sphere or uh, almost like Dyson sphere space stations in the long colony with a sort of clear glass thing, and the, of course, inside are '70s suburbs, you know, with Frank Lloyd Wright type houses and playgrounds and it's like silicon valley 70s suburbs which is not really a practical vision for build, building a trillion dollar space habitat you wouldn't just put you know like burger king and del taco and you know you wouldn't do that but uh it was a beautiful vision it was the first time uh, since von braun and bonestell that this was actually taken up engineering wise and so i got all excited about that and i wrote to gerard o'neill in 79 and i joined the space studies institute which literally was building rail guns at princeton which basically uh what do they call them linear induction motors that can fire a little bucket or a pellet at very very high speed by flipping magnets it's the basis behind uh magnetic levitation trains and they, what they want to do is attach one of these things to an asteroid and chew up parts of it and throw it out the end as like a little pea shooter and create a reaction mass and drive the asteroids to a place uh, where you could mine them, for example. So I was sending ideas and drawings to Space Studies Institute in 78, 79. So anyway, that's just my early geeking out for space. I think in a sense, you have to start young. Uh, if, if you want to uh, get anywhere. Well, you founded a company that uh, contracted with NASA to do uh, virtual reality simulations of uh, various missions. This is another deep, deep digression. But 1969, I get my first bike, bicycle, and I'm riding it through the slush. And I uh, go down to the neighbors who have a color television. And by color TV, it has like three colors. So it's like super <laughs> washed out. But in the, on this TV is the Apollo 9 launch. And I remember Walter Cronkite showing the pictures of the three astronauts. And one of them had really red hair. Uh, and his name was Rusty something or other. And I thought, well, that's a cool guy. I always remember him. And then turns out, I'm at this conference in 1999, and there he is. Now, his red hair is now white, but he was on Apollo 9, and he wrote, just like Edgar Mitchell, uh, this beautiful, beautiful piece about the sort of overview effect of seeing the Earth. And Apollo 9 tested all the uh, 
Apollo landing stuff in Earth orbit, like the LAM. And Rusty did an extensive spacewalk and got spacesick. He was the first person to be medically ca- uh, characterized getting space sickness. And I think those patches were developed because of Rusty's experience, those, those uh, space and air sickness patches. Rusty was, he got, he got so sick that, that he had to call off his uh, spacewalk at one point. So, but I met him. I met him in 1999, and he said, hey, you know, what do you do? And I told him virtual worlds and simulations and avatars. And and I said, hey, why don't we do something for the Apollo 11 30th anniversary? Why don't we go into this virtual world that's a, a set of the Apollo landing, which had been built by art students at the University of Cincinnati. You can come in and be in any avatar you want. He chose an Apollo moon suit avatar. And you can walk people through it. So he literally did this. He they were the first crew to ride on the Saturn V, and he talked about the stage separation and the violence of the kick when the second stage it was. See, I was talking. I was a real historic figure in an avatar space in active worlds. Looks sort of clunky and all text chat, but it's 3D and the the graphics were pretty good for '99, and it was similar to the time when uh, Terrence Terrence McKenna and I did the same thing, but the world that we were in was. Uh, not a space world, but a sort of trippy world. But that's a whole other topic, a whole other podcast. But then, so you you were already pr- pretty deeply involved with virtual yeah, reality at that point. I was one of the point. pioneers in a sense that, like Barack Obama, I was the community organizer for it. So I held the first conference in 1996 called Earth to Avatars. And here comes your little graphic up here, Earth to Avatars. Uh, I wrote the first book on it called Avatars uh, that came out in 97. And I, I organized the community so that everyone would intermix and the platforms that were being built, which later became things like Second Life and Minecraft, grew out of that. Uh, the platforms would be rich. And we did all of the major experiments. We did the virtual walk on the moon with Rusty Schreikart, which was a phenomenal experience of presence. People were mesmerized. They were, they were going into the limb the lunar module under Rusty's direction and backing their avatars out and sliding down the virtual ladder. And, 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 and we realize there's a power in these virtual environments for uh, all kinds of things, but for experiential learning. Now, what this did was I showed this at a NASA virtual worlds conference in September, 99. And in the front row was Bill Clancy, one of the chief scientists at, you know, at NASA Ames. Here's Ames again. And he, basically, they started funding us. So by 2000, I'd won several awards. I'd won SBIRs. Uh, by 2001, we were, we had multiple awards uh, from NASA and other sp- sort of space companies. And, and I'm, I'm assuming that at this point now you're developing virtual reality models of future yeah, so missions. Literally, this gave this little nerdy kid the opportunity to, in my head, which I'd been sort of traveling the solar system since I was nine or ten, we model everything. So every American mission, space station construction, shuttle Hubble servicing mission, incredible detail for training and for public outreach. Uh, Then I started doing designs. So people would civil servants would come from a different NASA center and say, 
hey, uh, how do we build a lunar base with just robotics, just teleoperated robotics? And I just, so I came up with one of the first comprehensive designs, all using lucid dreaming, by the way, uh, because I packed my head full of uh, ideas for about six months of all kinds of telerobotic things. And then one morning I woke up and it was like this vivid lucid dream as I was waking up. It was the entire rack assembly with robots leaving and going down to the surface one after the other. And and, and I drew it. I, I reached over to a pad and I drew it out and it became a reference study for Raytheon uh, for NASA, for headquarters. And it was shown at conferences and things like this. And it was in a I was in a documentary about dream, the power of human dreams, actually, uh, about a year later. This is about 2006 or something. So all that was rolling. And then one day, another crew arrived that said, Bruce, we cannot, we're civil servants. We cannot, we don't uh, have imagination because we're civil servants and we don't take risks, so we don't use our imagination. And we, we just don't do that, but you do. You're not a civil servant. Uh, will you figure out how to send a human crew to an asteroid? How to send a human crew? And at that point, NASA was headed back to the moon, which I think is actually a silly idea, but that's another topic. Uh, the Bush Bush Two was wanting to go back to the moon, and and this this hap this is happening to NASA now again, where a silly White House pronouncement has them heading back to the moon without really thinking why. You know, and but then there's all this push, and then it gets canceled. This is about the third time. This is happening the third or fourth time. I was just at a conference in Colorado where there's all these excitement about there's companies going to make little landers that land on the moon, and there's money allocated. But and our our uh, you know incredibly informed vice president is saying we need to land on the moon by 2024, and it's like how informed is that? How crazy is that? You know, it's with uh, anyway, this makes no sense, but that'll all change. But anyway, so NASA was headed to the moon again in 2007. And uh, so we did an alternative. We showed how to take that same hardware, the same new constellation Orion capsule, and instead send it to an asteroid, dock it with the asteroid, with tether downs, with a little module attached to the end. And I did all this design on paper for a group from NASA, NASA's Johnson Space Center, and go down tethers. Once you get attached, because asteroids have low gravity, even one that's 500 meters, and it's like an insect. Insects have to keep from flying. They have hooks on their their legs, so they keep from getting pulled off by wind. So we did that with my brother's rock piton tether system that he told me how to do. And... Um, and it was a viable design. And so I did the design. And then the civil servant said, well, it's too controversial to for us to put it out there because we're supposed to be going to the moon. But the administrator wanted to find out if this same hardware could go to another target, a fresh target. You know, asteroids were made out of them. They're a threat to us, but they're also the source of the organics that probably started life on Earth. So they're really interesting, and there are future resource stepping stones. And so I did it. I did this whole design, and they said, well, we can't release it, but you can. You're not a civil servant. You can't get fired. And this is from Pete, Pete Warden, our two-star general running you know, NASA Ames. So I did. So I, I 
lined up all the media. I lined up the public affairs office, internal NASA scientists, everyone in the know that we were going to release a story about going to a new place in the solar system. But it was just me doing it with my designs. We did it at Industrial Light and Magic in, in San Francisco in front of a room full of animators and standing next to Darth Vader in a glass case. And then a big public uh, thing. And it was just a design. It wasn't NASA's official thing, but the media picked up on it. It was on the cover of Popular Science. It was all over the Internet. It was NASA's new target. And what we were doing was using this push uh, to push the, redirect the agency. And it worked. So suddenly it was NASA's new target. And we knew that no one was going to, there wasn't a brain running NASA. It's just a big bureaucracy. So all of the contractors jumped on it as asteroids are cool now. No one knew where this came from. So NASA steered when Obama came in from the moon toward asteroids. So we got the OSIRIS-REx mission. We got all this interest. That It's been huge. Um, so that that's one of the things that you can do with the design. Uh, and your company has been involved in, uh, I gather, many iterations of uh, this, this notion of what can we do with asteroids. But what we also did for the same Rusty Schweikart, this on Apollo 9 and the virtual, you know, walk on the moon guy, we did, he founded an organization called the B612. And I think it's from the little prince who studied asteroids or jumped from one to the other, the Petit Prince. So B612, its whole mission was focus on asteroids as threats to our civilization. And we did the gravity tractoring solution. We took their data from JPL and showed how you could have a little kinetic impactor that would make a change and you could have a spacecraft just orbiting alongside an asteroid it would pull its orbit slightly just ever so slightly so it would miss the earth uh, over several years that that's a gentle you know way of doing it so all of that settled into a whole new thing i thought i was done by 2012 our funding had dried up and i was going into pure science i was going into the origin of life uh, that that was Another passion. I said, it's time to actually work. I'd met David Deemer, who you know very well at, at UC Santa Cruz, and we were really working on our new hot spring hypothesis. And it, the breakthrough came at the end of 2013. But the space sort of thing was sort of on the back burner. But then suddenly, suddenly, I just got a bee in my bonnet that I was going to go back to work on the asteroid problem. How do we get resources from asteroids? And I had no funding, but I had still had Ryan Norcus on the team, our fantastic illustrator animator in, in Australia. I said, Ryan, we're just going to do a few things. I, I have this idea of a bag or a balloon that we have to get it around an asteroid or a kind of comet head that has stuff coming off, gas coming off. As I had been with my friend Brad Blair at NASA's Ames Research Center, Ames, there it is again, uh, we were standing there in the middle of the night in 2013, and there was a flashing light on the top of Hangar 1, which is one of the largest airship hangars in the world. The thing that actually started Silicon Valley was really the airship moving there in the 30s, the Navy's airship operations. So it's flashing, and I said, Brad, you're 
you're big on mining the moon, but what if this flashing light was a comet that got caught in the Earth-Moon system, and it was just orbiting the Earth and Moon, and it was burning off, you know, the tail was going this way, and then it would go this way, and the volatiles of the ice was burning off, like what happens to comets. What would you think of that? Uh, rather than the difficulties of going to the moon, finding a dark, shadowed crater, and mining this dust to try to find any any semblance of water, because you need water in space. Um, so Brad said, if that happened, every spacefaring nation would be trying to lay claim to that, because you'd have 100,000 tons of water, ice, and CO2 and everything to make a huge fueling station, and to provide water for radiation, for drinking, for cooling. It would change the economics of space. There'd be a gigantic filling station in in orbit. And I said, "Well, what would they do?" He said, "They try to enclose it somehow in a fabric enclosure and manage the temperature, and then capture those things coming off uh, those gases." And I said, "Well, why don't we learn how to go and do that then? If if that's actually the easiest way to open the solar system, let's just go do that. You know, rather than exporting." digging machines and conveyor belts and half of Earth's civilization industrial base to the moon to do a simple thing of extracting water when it's flying through the solar system and coming in in meteor showers every year when you see the the tails of comets burning up and it still follows, falls on the Earth by the millions of tons. You know, and it probably gave us part of our water, certainly our, our organics too, that are in our bodies are made out of those things. And so then I started working on it, and I started to create fabric bags. And you can actually see some of the pictures behind me there are the original drawings from Shepard, which are online, or I can put them online. Now, I was doing that. Ryan was making sort of wireframing diagrams of this, and we were at the contact conference, Jim Finero's contact conference in 2014. And I was standing outside the Domain Hotel, and I, there's a skinny guy standing there with no badge, and his, and he's, he was a replacement speaker. And I said to him, hey, for some reason I was looking at Ryan's animations on my phone, and I said, would you like to see our asteroid capture solution? And I showed this to this man, and he turned, looked at it, and he said, it'll never work. I said, uh-oh. Uh, I said, well, who are you? And he said, I'm Peter Janiskins, and I'm an asteroid astronomer at the SETI Institute. My job is if there's a fireball in the sky, I, I, my phone rings, and we go pick up the pieces. Or we try to track meteorites and asteroids as they enter the atmosphere. And he knew everything there was to know about asteroids. I thought, I'm busted. My, my idea is falsified. And so he said, don't worry about it. Let's go to lunch. So we went out to the fish restaurant and had a bowl of clam chowder. At the end of the bowl of clam chowder, he looked up and said, I figure out how to make it work. I figured it out. So as we were walking back to the conference, he said, we bring the gas to the asteroid. We don't go and enclose it and wait for uh, gases to come off because it's just going to be too, too difficult. But if we bring the gas up there like a tank full of helium, we can put in the balloon enclosure. We, it's now the asteroid's inside the enclosure. There's, there's great video you can feature. And 
you don't touch it. You don't have a gantry or you don't have a mitt grabbing it because it's a consolidated rubble pile with parts that will come off and destroy your enclosure and your spacecraft. You can't touch these things. You have to handle them very, very gently. Um, so when because it's in, in a gas-filled balloon, it has friction with the gas and will gradually slow with the friction and stop. And then we can use jets of gas from the same ductwork to rotate it like a sailing ship into the, the breeze that we're pushing across at less than a newton of force. And then uh, we can drive it. We can push that breeze on it like a sailing ship for space. And as it starts to move, it's called delta V in the space geeky industry. It starts to change its orbit. We then fire a solar propulsion system out the back to make sure we don't come into contact as it's on the move we have to keep the balloon centered around it and we could move these things all over the solar system we could harvest volatiles on the way we could be sucking out the juices even taking uh, gas and pulling out nickel and iron and making parts in space using the mond carbonyl gas process in vacuum to electroform parts and that would solve the problem of the kubrick space station to be able to make giant trusses and beams from carbonyl gas extraction and pop them off, open the enclosure, let the asteroid go, pop off the part, then re-encapsulate the asteroid and continue gas mining. And then the third variant, uh, which is my favorite, is if you have something that's a bunch of water ice and a bunch of rock and carbonaceous material, you melt it carefully with the controlling gas until it becomes a globule like one of those glass spheres that has life in it, that all it needs is sunlight. There's shrimp in there, and it could be sealed for 100 years. That uh, globule of water, you would introduce life. You have algaes and whole ecosystem, even fishes or shrimps or something, and that would be a biosphere. And the biosphere, and I said this to Dorian Sagan, Carl Sagan's son. You may have inter interviewed Carl. No, so Carl and Jerry O'Neill, I guess, were the great space guys of the 80s. Um, but this idea of biospheres, we can make them that easily and then harvest for them. So yes, after all this, we can make Kubrick's space station in parts. We can feed crew and we can create a sustainable pearl of gas stations and mining outposts and food production throughout the solar system if we want to as a species and we can actually spread not only human civilization through this one invention uh, but we can uh, also allow Gaia if you will call Gaia uh, the ability to finally reproduce because the earth is running out of steam you know as James Lovelock wrote about in his last book uh, the sun's on this heating curve and we're going to run out of the ability for complex life to be on land within 100 to 200 million years because of the, the, the stars and main sequences getting hotter. And so the atmosphere, if it has any CO2 in it at all, we run away to green uh, greenhouse runaway. We become Venus. So actually, there's a Terminator line that gobbled up Venus early on and evaporated its oceans to the atmosphere, getting a 90-bar CO2 atmosphere, that Terminator line is getting close to the Earth. And once we cross over that, we flip to Venus conditions, just as Mars died because it went outside a habitable zone. And that Lovelock's claim is we're really close to that. 
and that humans are the last shot. We're, we're this massively complex, beautiful eruption of, of evolution, but we're it. There is nothing coming. There's not arachnids driving cars with eight stick shifts coming in the future because we'll have used up the gasoline, but uh, I'm sounding more like Seth Shostak here. Uh, but this is it. I mean, the, the humans are what the Earth really was for, you know, apart from the evolution thing, but we're like the great and glorious expression of the power of evol- four billion years of evolution. We're, and and it's our be- bequeath, it's, it, but it's our mission to take complex life forward. It's our responsibility and it's our great mission. It gives humanity an actual mission, you know, for once. You know, it's not just eating hamburgers and paying mortgages and complaining all day. It, We actually have a mission, which is to preserve and project forward this precious complex life that we are into the cosmos. You're saying we we've got to do it within the next hundred billion, hundred million. We probably have to do it in the next hundred because we're we're stressing the environment such that we reach a breaking point. We haven't seen the beginnings of this yet. Of of real climate change disaster hasn't started yet. We're not feeling the pain. We can still order stuff from Amazon and it comes and there aren't empty grocery stores and, and, and huge riots and refugee populations by their billions. That that has not started. So we're in this halcyonic period where there's some panic about things or whatever. We haven't seen the first. I thought we'd see them earlier, but maybe a little in the 2020s. We have like a runway still. We, we have time. Uh, but when the hockey stick of methane release from the permafrost happens, if that happens sometime in the century, we're going to flip into, you know, basically Blade Runner 2049. Uh, and then all bets are off because you're now in an enclave system. Uh, you can pick any three islands you want to make out of Florida. Uh, but cities are become city states. They become, you know, this is one model. They become connected by air transport and energy systems, but in between there's just a mess. You know, that could be one model, uh, the enclave system. Uh, But it's not very pleasant. And when that happens, it's all about, you know, it's like when Rome fell. When when the Western Rome fell and it kept getting sacked by these tribes, basically from the Paleolithic, there was no security. And so all the institutions in the West were lost i mean the libraries and the theater and the polity and it was all lost and so eastern rome was preserved and there were parts of the roman provinces that kept going under their own governance Um, but it was a huge loss to for hundreds of years of, of 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 all that and we really don't want to go through that so if at all we can bridge over and this is an initiative i'm going to start in the next month here uh, to try to network a bunch of people together to bridge us over. That's, that's a whole other topic. Maybe you better explain. I don't know exactly what you meant by that phrase, to bridge us over. The only way to get things done, in, in this world we have environmental groups that raise the alarm and they try to work the political angle, but that's not how things get done in the world, right? Because politics is so malleable and personally involved and and politicians don't have a lot of power to affect things. 
where things get done in the world is finance connected to infrastructure builds and property. That's how the world turns. You know, people think that presidents and whatnot are actually able to do stuff, but they really do very little. So here's here's the, the strategy. And I'm, I'm calling this thing a climate mitigation initiative because climate amelioration suggests that we can somehow do a massive scale process of either sequestering CO2 or reducing greenhouse emissions. But there isn't any real indication that there's a political will to do this. And humans keep getting born, and every baby that's born is going to use a thousand times the energy that uh, when, of when we were born. They're going to want mobile phones and AR headsets and whatever they're going to want. They're going to want lots of material and and travel in their lives, and there's more and more of them. So it doesn't really matter what what we do. These are recycling and stuff are very minor, <clears throat> a very minor amelioration effects. So what we actually have to do is look forward about a mitigation, which means these changes are going to come and we have to build bridging technologies to overcome them. Uh, one example of, uh, of a, a serious challenge is, is heading into California in the 30s and 40s, which is the hurricanes that start in the Gulf of Mexico and down in Baja are getting more and more powerful. This was worked out by my friend Dave Muffley, who was Apple's arborist who laid out the oak forest at the new Apple Park, he and Steve realized we've got to plant Tucson and Mexican oak trees in Cupertino to weather climate change. So they, they planted 6,000 of them. They grew them, he grew them, and it's the most fantastic project you, you know, in terms of active forest migration. And Dave explained to me last year that he said, look, those hurricanes that usually break in Arizona – and they dump a ton of rain on Arizona. There's all these washouts. They're powerful, getting more powerful. They're going to push through to Los Angeles. So September, August, whatever, hurricanes are coming through the Southland, powering up the coast of California. They're going to turn. They're going to pick up more energy on the Pacific. They're going to go through the Central Valley, dumping 10-inch tropical rainfalls on the Central Valley in August. And if you talk to any farmer, orchardist in the Central Valley and say, this, what if this happened to you? They'd say, we're done. Our props are done. Our trees are destroyed. It's a disaster for what we're trying to do. And it turns out that Dave worked out that it would also kill 100% of the California oak, native oaks because this infusion of this type of rainfall would cause fungus to emerge in, over several years and wipe out the oak forest just as the bark beetle killed all the trees in Kamloops, B.C. and in British Columbia, all the way down to Arizona, and all the pine, the pine bark beetle infestation. So you lose 100%. So you lose California agriculture. It's under huge stress. You have to invest tens of billions of dollars to prepare for this. And a good example from the, the creative minds was Blade Runner 2049 a film that came out, I think, last year, made by Weta Workshop. And next time I'm down at Weta, I'm going to actually say, you guys nailed it. The first scene in Blade Runner 2049 is the cop is landing his floating uh, cop car where? In the Central Valley at a hydroponics farm where some guy's raising weird huge squid or something. And it lands next to a dead oak tree, just all dead and white. 
He said, that, you nailed it. You nailed it for, in this model. So mitigation means really looking forward and saying, we need to invest now. We need to build seawalls. We need to protect refinery complexes from salt water infusion. We need to roll through agriculture. You know, we need, we need to do all this stuff. We need to start, the 20s needs to be the decade of design and the 30s we must be building all over the world to mitigate. So that, that's... In, in order, it sounds like what you're saying, in order to buy enough time for the human civilization to develop the uh, infrastructure and the hardware required to migrate well, to outer to do space. Anything, actually, in a, in a sense that we will stop thinking about space migration or the origin of life or many other visionary things if we're under this kind of threat, the kind of threat that Western Rome found and, and the whole Roman Empire felt, felt itself under. We will just have no uh, capacity to do things. I mean, we'll lose the capacity for art and theater and hope altogether. We'll just be in a defensive position, you know, as the monasteries of uh, the Dark Ages found them themselves in like the earth. If I hear you correctly, Bruce, you're saying the best we can do is ameliorate the problem. We're eventually it's it's going to overtake I think it, us. It's going to overtake us. Uh, we're sort of guaranteed to have these issues, so we're really good tool makers. You know, off the plains of Africa, we managed to survive the desiccation of East Africa when the Rift Valley broke. And the complete desertification of East Africa when supposedly the modern line of hominids ended up in South Africa and modern humans sort of emerged, you know, the, the signs in the Blombos Caves, for example, that show modern people at 130 or 180,000 years ago from this neck down, genetic neck down, we're incredibly uh, versatile and, and uh, adaptive. So... We just flip into that mode. So instead of denying things or having the hope that we can somehow ameliorate and delay, we need to like look this thing right down the barrel of what this thing is that's coming, do our projections, and start to build and start to prepare. Um, so I met an, an admiral, a U.S. Navy Admiral, Norman Hayes in Qatar in January, and he and I came up with this thing. We were standing at the Museum of Muslim Art, which is a fantastic new museum, and there's like a three, $400 billion city that's been built across the bay. You know, Qatar's been this huge building boom preparing for the FIFA World Cup. They have really intelligent people in the royal family. You know, Her Highness, who established the Qatar Foundation and has got all these universities there, and it's, it's really quite an amazing place. But they had had a one-inch rainfall in December. So a month before we were there, and there was no understreet drainage built in the whole country. They've never had a one-inch rainfall in, in the Gulf, and it flooded the entire country. And Her Royal Highness said, we screwed up. We did not prepare for climate change, and we don't have a single thing done to ameliorate sea level rise. We're at sea level. We're effectively an island, and we're building seven stadiums now for FIFA World Cup and a subway which is going to be inundated. What were we thinking? And Norman and I looked across at the cityscape and realized that's going to be rusty scaffolding in 40 or 50 years. 
we've got to do something. And this is an admiral who had served in the Iraq, the, the wasteful and completely unnecessary Iraq and Afghanistan operations where the U.S. blew $2 trillion for nothing and all these lives lost, you know, ridiculous wastage when the U.S. could have been energy independent in, in 15 years with those, that same expense. You know, it's one of the great crimes of our time that we allow our governments to be profligate and put ourselves into debt and to, to create such an animosity around the world when so, so-called so greatest country on earth blows it multiple times and the public just sits there. It's like as we blow it again, you know, and, and we blow our futures. But this is a man, Norman Hayes, who deeply cares about the country in the future. And he said, we've got to do something. And his idea was we need a national convention to get the grassroots groups together to get the, the Department of Defense in, Army Corps of Engineers, Skidmore, Rowlings, Merrill, engineering firms, everybody at the table, and we'll do it in New Orleans. We'll do a convention in New Orleans because it's a, a city that's lost, a city that will no longer be there in 40 or 50 years. There's no, you can't, you can't do anything about that. So, and we'll force the federal government to, to pay attention and stand up a new federal agency to deal with this. And, and we'll, we'll do this the way that we would, you know, coming out of the Department of Defense, whose mission is to defend America against threats. Now, if the sea is rising all across the country, we need to have different walls than walls of Mexico. And we all worked it out. It was like half an hour. We said, wait a minute. We're going to have to merge the economy of Mexico and the U.S. into a single unit because we're going to need 40 million skilled concrete workers. You get them from Central America. Those are the guys who have the incredible skill sets that will be needed to build a trillion-dollar sea-level mitigation system and agricultural mitigation and everything much bigger than the Apollo Project or the Marshall Plan. And, and he just had this incredible passion for it. So we started having weekly calls. And about a month ago, I woke up in bed at night like climate mitigation associates. We'll set up an initial step as a network of several hundred people who have a passion but have also deep skill sets about this issue, uh, about how to build and prepare for these changes. And then the, the the CMA, I call it. So I got climatemitigation.net. And it's now waiting to find help. You know, maybe someone listening to New Thinking Aloud will say, hey, I'll build the site. <laughs> well, let me ask you this question, Bruce. I, I, I'm a little confused because earlier you said you cannot count on governments to do this. Politicians have really no power and there's no political will. It has to come from the uh, infrastructure, the industrial center, and the financial center. Uh, but then you said, no, we've got to get the government in, involved. So how do you, how so do you envision for instance, it? Uh, things get done in America through vested self-interest. You know, let's, let's face it. That, that's, how, that's how the pivot works. It's rare that public interest is is represented it's usually companies or special groups that that make laws and stuff like that so here's what happened so last year uh i think it was a combination of uh facebook and google who had just built 10 billion dollars in campuses 
in Silicon Valley, but they're basically in the shoreline area marshlands right near, right? Some of it's on NASA Ames. They're at sea level. So they built these billions of dollars of, of campuses. And somebody from one of the companies uh, approached the county of San Mateo and said, we're under threat and in 40 years or so, there's going to be storm surges coming through our campuses. What are you guys doing about this? Because we need some kind of Dutch style seawall uh, abatement system, but we still need to let water through into the marshlands or the, the, the bay doesn't have any lungs. You know, and, and we, we know this is complicated. Are you doing anything? And the county of San Mateo says, we're not, we're a poor county. We, we don't have resources. So I think it was Google that said, we have billions of dollars. We will fund the studies. Let's at least start studying this thing. So the Bay Area Planning Group got involved. There was actually something on the ballot last time uh, for the Bay Area seawall. So I explained this to Norman Hayes, and he said, that's all good. And that shows that there's companies interested, individuals interested, academics interested, but that's a local thing. We need a national thing. We can't have just individual cities doing their own thing. We need to coordinate this thing. And he's a long-range planner. His, his career at the Pentagon was deeply involved in long-range planning. And I'm a long-range planning junkie as well as an archives history junkie. So he said, we need to coordinate all this into one thing. And so what seems to be out there, I'll give another example, Chevron in Houston. Like there's the Houston Ship Canal, there's Chevron, all the largest refinery complexes in the United States are sort of in that coast. They had seawater, saltwater come into their complexes during the hurricanes. This is not good. Uh, it just destroys equipment. I mean, the, the seawater that went down the subway in New York, I think from Sandy, destroyed that subway line for a year. It just It wiped it out. So you don't need a lot of sea level rise before you get major damage. So Chevron and the other refiners are like, this is serious. We need to be investing in infrastructure to, to protect all this. It's, it's the energy source for the United States, whether you like it or not. If you're going to lose that capacity, we need to work. So then the idea is to go to finance, to big finance, and say, what is the percentage of your portfolios that are at risk to, to climate change? We will do the studies. The CMA, the Climate Mitigation Associates, will do the studies and tell you when your where your risk is and what decade it is. Because if you don't know, you know you, you got you guys are risk oriented. And then out of that study will come a fund, the mitigation climate mitigation fund itself, where all these organizations can pile in, whether they be cities or Google or huge financial organizations or engineering firms, and there's an investment opportunity here. So then hundreds of billions of dollars pour in to different parts of the mitigation investment field that will start doing the build-outs, the design in the 20s and the builds in the 30s. It becomes, so finance then turns and pays attention and starts investing and all these people jump on board it doesn't matter what politicians say or naysayers. It's over with. They're either at the table or they're not at the table. And because the industry's moving, individual property owners are moving, finance is moving, infrastructure is moving to prepare so that you don't lose all that. 
you know, and you can just safely ignore all the noise. Well, we started uh, by talking about space migration and uh, harvesting of asteroids. But what what you're saying is we have a, a more urgent problem before we can really uh, address the kind of infrastructure required to take more than a few people into outer space. Uh, we've we've got to make the Earth a bit more habitable. Yeah, and in a sense, this is why just a few months ago I woke up again in the middle of the night seeing all the visionary, the dreamy projects I have about expanding the biosphere and figuring out how life began and the philosophical impacts of that, uh, and even the current work I'm doing with, with Luminous, which is all about the inner healing, all of that will not progress if we're under a state of a siege by these changes. So with the years that I have left and the energy I have left, I should do something. And I was given this opportunity to meet Admiral Norman Hayes. And he's the first black admiral in the U.S. Navy. He's retired. He's an amazing fellow. He worked for Jim Stavridis, who was a four-star admiral. Really, these are great people. These are people who truly care about the earth and humanity. And they see all the foibles and the problems. Uh, but they're very straight up. I really think uh, military people are some of the best people we could go to for leadership. Uh, in this issue so it just all came together and so now like i'm on the verge of saying okay i'll i'll put it out there and this is what we're doing tonight because we can't do space migration we can't heal humanity's deep wounds and create a beautiful new world that we know is possible to to quote charles eisenstein we can't do any of this if we're under uh shock the system becomes under shock so if the system starts you can see, hear the incoming shells in the 30s when things start rocking. If we have done our planning, if we've done thinking deeply about how to how to mitigate this, when the first big shocks come, people are going to be uncertain, in a state of panic, not knowing what the future is, but there's been enough people thinking about it and saying, we predicted this, we have the following ABC plans, we can now shift. We, we, it's not hitting us for, by surprise. We were not unprepared. And what Norman Hayes had said in one of our calls, he said, there is a huge difference in, in, in war uh, between having 24 hours notice of your enemy's movements and likely attack and having no notice at all. It's a totally different thing. So if we have forewarning of the, in a sense, the war, the conditions that are coming our way, we can utilize that so that uh, it's not a question of winning this war. It, it's a question of, uh, in a sense, mitigating what we brought upon ourselves uh, through just sort of carelessness and not knowing. You know, by the year 1970, probably there was enough CO2 emissions in the atmosphere to, to bring on these changes before we even were even anyone was studying it. We probably had done the damage, and thank goodness we mitigated the, the ozone emissions. That was, a, that was a sign that we can do things. And also, as you start investing hundreds of billions of dollars in mitigation, guess what? Some of that's going to come into the CO2 emissions question. So we're by focusing finance and infrastructure, like we're building a trillion dollars of sea level abatement around the world. Some of that is going to go to reducing CO2 emissions. 
and and much more than if we just made it a political thing. Because it's like, well, we're doing all this investment in infrastructure to to bridge over. We may as well like make the ride a little less rough and 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 work on you know if 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 we get uh, the methane plume coming off of the permafrost, we're really in trouble. I and mean, that's going to be 500 years. I mean, that that's a greenhouse gas that's far more powerful than CO2. It's going to look like Blade Runner 2049. I don't know when, but that we actually have to build for that scenario, the methane release. We have to design for that scenario. Um, because in 500 years, we still want to have a civilization. We want to have healthcare and communications and travel and you know not just lose it all in like in some hollywood post-apocalyptic you know depiction well i have to say in in the last uh, month or so i i have seen a number of articles and i think even one or two books saying that uh, the, there is a real risk that civilization could end, but uh, I've only heard that really uh, recently, and I imagine that most people uh, don't think along those lines at all. Yeah, and you know, the uh, 1990-91 was the last time where we could have ended this whole thing. If the Soviet Union had come apart, the times I was moving to Prague, the Soviet Union was coming apart. And I remember when Boris Yeltsin was standing on the tank in Red Square in front of the city hall or whatever it was, and it was chaos. And the Czechs around me, this is September 91, they would say, well, it's going to be the Prague Spring all over again. There are going to be tanks coming over the Tatra Mountains. There could be a nuclear war there could, as the Soviet Union comes apart. And then the West would get involved and just complete chaos in the nuclear winter that Carl Sagan described. We could have done that. We did not. We put those that spear down. We we not set up a single nuke in, in what was predicted by all military planners and all intel that it was inevitable, right? They just said, we're there's going to be a thermonuclear exchange between country A and B and C, and there's going to be accidental thing. We haven't ever done it. That's a, a huge hopeful statement about the evolution of humanity that we did not use those weapon systems and still haven't. And when everyone in, in the know would have said in these circumstances, just prepare for it, you know? So it, it, there is, there is cause for optimism that, that humanity even more tightly networked together. If we stop listening to the anxiety inducing naysayers and the fake news and all that, noise. We got to cut that out because we just can't afford that. We can't afford the distractions of that. We have to get down to work. We really have to get down to work and just block all that stuff out. That's why I don't watch the news, you know, because it's just mostly just noise and panic and stuff like that. So it's like, no, the answer to the, the conspiracy theory or the fake news thing or the crazy politician is like, we just can't afford you at this point. We need to get to work. And here are the pragmatic and practical things we need to do as a civilization. You know, just ignore them. Just take the energy out of that system and, and focus on the people that are sensible and pragmatic, willing to invest and, and looking for the long term. I guess that pretty much summarizes your message, Bruce. Once again, it's it's been a very enlightening conversation. I learned quite a few new things I was not conscious of. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, 
it's it's always a pleasure to be on your show and to study uh, the the different suit jacket eras of Jeffrey Mishlove. <laughs> this is you're in you're I can see that you're in a very 21st century uh, shiny. I was going to wear a shiny shirt too, shiny black shirt, a very pressed, uh, wonderful suit jacket with, of course, your personal logo type, and you've got a nice black backdrop. So this is a Mishlove 2019. Yeah, maybe next year it'll change. Yeah, you'll be wearing like a Vulcan. You'll be like in a... A Vulcan robe, yeah. Well, there's a there's a New Yorker cartoon that I loved, which was there were these... Uh, this guy was walking along, and everybody had these nice big smartphones, and he had a dumb flip phone, and he said, well, everyone's got smartphones, and I just have this dumb old dumb flip phone and the next thing the next cartoon it showed these blobs of energy and then he's just standing there and said everyone's become a pure energy being and i'm still in this body (laughs) (laughs) we're always one step behind well we'll have to talk more about the energy being uh side of things uh in the future uh but this this has been a great excursion uh Bruce I'm really happy to be with you again and you know I'm going to be uh we have scheduled a time now with Annalisa Oh it's so wonderful yeah you'll um, for all of you uh the previous podcast we did a lot of uh discussion on new uh group based fantastic dynamics that is now coming into our society our civilization to help heal the inner wounds of the little children as you way the little inner kindergarten and Annalisa set up one of these if you could call it a school it's kind of a healing plus awakening group that i've been part of for four years and i've never been through anything close to this and to my mind it's it's like the most advanced spiritual technology that, that I've ever encountered. And Annalisa worked this out over 30 years, and we're all just, uh, just it's just a huge uh, pleasure to and to be in this. It's almost like a return of the Jedi's, you know. These are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> so I'm I'm linking right now to our previous interview uh, for viewers who really uh, haven't watched it and want to get up to speed about the impact of the Illuminous Awareness Institute in your life and your work. Uh, they can just click right now on the upper right hand corner of their screen and and watch it. And soon I will be releasing the interview with uh, Annalisa herself. And what we can, uh, Jeffrey, plan on our next one on, like, the pure blob energy beings. We'll, we'll talk about <laughs> that one next. So we all want to become. <laughs> Sooner or later. <laughs> well, Bruce, this has been a, a, a great pleasure to be with you, and, and we'll schedule more. Absolutely. Let's keep it going. Mm-hmm. 